Welcome to the Aquaculture in Maine podcast. This is your go-to podcast for information about the aquaculture sector in Maine. Today, I'm here with Adam St. Gillet, who is the Aquaculture Innovation Specialist at the Aquaculture Research Institute. So this is the first episode of the podcast, and I think that content like this has been a long time coming, and I cannot think of a better person than Adam to kick off this series by talking all things kelp with us. So Adam, if you wouldn't mind introducing yourself um, by just saying a little bit about your position and uh, letting the audience get to know you a little bit. My name is Adam St. Gillet. I'm an aquaculture innovation specialist with ARI. Um, what does that mean? Uh, that means that uh, I work on a lot of different research projects that are uh, sort of facing the industry in an applied way, trying to move it forward. That's the <laughs> that's the title sounds right. Innovating. Um, right now, I'm working on some bivalve projects, so working on um, scallops and oysters, as well as I've been doing applied seaweed research for well, probably a little over six years, almost seven years now. Thanks, Adam. So I'm hoping before we get into the nitty gritty of seaweed, if you could just set the stage for our listeners by describing broadly the seaweed industry in Maine, um, falling within the context of the global seaweed industry. Um, Seaweed farming is relatively new to Maine, as well as some other areas across the North Atlantic and the North Pacific, but seaweed farming is not new. It's been happening for a very long time in other areas uh, around the world, namely in places like China and Japan and South Korea. Um, So globally, aquaculture of seaweeds is massive, right? It's like a $15 billion a year industry. So it is at scale in these places already. And in places like Maine and other places in the US that are just emerging into seaweed farming, um, we're very much starting at square one. so, so I would say seaweed farming in Maine um, centers mostly around one particular species at this moment, which is sugar kelp, Saccharina latissima. There are about, give or take, 10 species of seaweed in Maine that could be farmed. Um, sugar kelp is the one that seems to have taken off at the moment, and that started about 10 years ago. Um, did I answer your question? Sorry. <laughs> yeah, so is sugar kelp native to Maine? Yes, then? yes, so okay. it is. Um, native to Maine and seaweeds that are farmed or will be farmed in Maine will always be native to Maine. Um, it is illegal to import non-native species for aquaculture in Maine if because for aquaculture in the ocean. Thanks, Adam. I'd love to start with the actual farming process of seaweed um, and then chat about why we're farming it and why it's so important to Maine and how it all got started. So Adam, maybe if you could start with the creation of the actual farm and then go into how farmers begin to grow this product, followed by what happens once the product is ready to harvest. Sure, yeah. Um, So seaweed, I mean, like it's like like a $15 billion a year industry, right? So that's, you know, why are we farming seaweed to begin with? Um, So people must be using it for something if we're selling $15 billion a year of it. So it's kind of, it's in everything. Um, A lot of the seaweeds that produce carrageenan and other sort of like compounds within the seaweed end out as ingredients in things that you use and eat every day that you don't really think about, like toothpaste or yogurt or ice cream. Those are kind of the classic examples of things that seaweed components are hidden in. Um, In Maine, with sugar cups specifically, 
the first companies had to vertically integrate because there wasn't really a domestic market for seaweed. And like I said, it's a, it's at scale globally, right? So you can't start at a really small scale and expect to compete with those international markets because they're already traded at commodity scales. So they're very large farms and going for very low prices per pound, right? So the companies in Maine started by vertically integrating. So they had to figure out how do we create the babies? How do we create the farm? And how do we create the products? Um, so I can kind of walk our way through that. Um, so right now, so every farmer has to start with seeds, right? Um, there's no direct analog with kelp because there are no kelp seeds. The way you create baby kelp to go onto a farm, um, right now anyway, is that we're, uh, the farm, the, the industry is dependent on wild kelp beds, right? So a farmer will or whoever is running the kelp we call them nurseries um will go out into the gulf of maine around now well a little earlier than now we'll call it fall um and look for wild kelp blades that are reproductive so that means they've got this uh, special tissue called sorus tissue that grows down the center of the blade it's really dark and kind of raised so if you're ever out on the beach after a big storm and you see kelp washed up um, you can pick it up and kind of look at it and if the center of the kelp blade looks dark and very different from the rest, that's that's the source tissue. So that's the that's the gold. That's what everyone is after. So you can take that source tissue back into onto land and into a lab or a nursery facility, and you can make that kelp release spores. So kelp. Uh, sorry, Adam. I want to interrupt you for a second. Uh, you were mentioning spores, and I think it would be interesting for listeners to hear about the life cycle of macroalgae and what these spores really are. So kelp has a complex but not so complex life cycle in the grand scheme of macroalgaes. Macroalgaes have are just really convoluted life cycles. Um, kelp will release spores. Those spores swim around, which is really cool. You don't think of kelp being mobile, but you look at them under the microscope and they're motoring all over the place. Um, so they swim around looking for something to settle on. Once they settle, they create uh, an intermediary life phase, which is called a gametophyte. Those gametophytes are very, very tiny, microscopic, um, filamentous little things, look like brown fuzz. But those brown fuzzes are both boys and girls. And once those mature, the gametophytes then release eggs and sperm, which fertilize in the water column or sometimes internally, and then resettle back out. And then those grow into what's called a sporophyte, which is the thing that you think of when you think of a kelp blade, right? A big piece of lasagna in the ocean. So that's the life cycle. Um, you can control all of that in a facility and uh, boy, I could talk for a really long time on this. So long story short, right? You, you get the source issue, you release spores. The goal is then to have those spores settle on something that you want them to settle on. And the way this is done in Maine right now is on what we call spools. So it's a picture, it's a two inch piece of PVC pipe with a bunch of nylon twine wrapped really tightly around it for the entire length of the pipe, usually about two feet long. So figure, 200 feet of twine wrapped around two feet of pipe. So when you put that spool in seawater and you put spores in it, the spores will settle onto the twine. And then it's just a matter of making those spores happy for three to four weeks. So you put them in a tank, you give them nutrients, you give them light, you give them the right temperature, and they'll go through that developmental reproductive process. And in four weeks, you end up with a spool that has uh, hundreds of thousands to millions of tiny little baby kelps on it. That's the nursery phase. What uh, nutrients are you giving them in this phase? Um, so kelp are not plants, but they're very like plants, right? So they, they photosynthesize. They're autotrophs. 
Um, so they need light and they need nutrients just like a plant would. Um, so we use a formulation called F over two. It's something that was developed um, by other scientists long ago, um, specifically for microalgae. So it has the right ratios of things like iron and nitrogen and phosphorus and other trace nutrients and minerals that you would find in seawater. So once they've been in the nursery for about four weeks, then they're ready to go out onto the farm. Okay, so I'm following you so far. So we are at the end of the nursery phase and these spools are ready to be set out in the water. So how is the twine being placed in the water for the growing process to actually begin? Um, so the next task obviously is to get this uh, 200 feet of kelpie twine that is condensed onto this two foot piece of pipe stretched out in the ocean so that it can grow. Um, so a kelp, what a, typically what a kelp farm is, if you think about it, is it's a rope uh, that's suspended at a certain depth, a depth that the kelp will be happy at in the Gulf of Maine that seems to be around two meters. And on that rope, you then unspool this piece of twine, right? So the most simplest version of a farm would be an anchor and a mooring line, and then uh, your culture line, which is at two meters, to another mooring line down to another anchor, right? So it's just a rope between two anchors with some buoys on the corners. Um, the way that you get the seed onto the farm is that you thread your culture line, so that rope that's two, two meters under the surface of the water, you thread it through your two-inch your two PVC pipe. Um, then you take one end of the kelp uh, twine off of that pipe, tie it to your rope, and then basically you can motor your boat down the farm, and that 200 feet of kelp twine unspools off the PVC pipe and winds itself around your larger rope in the ocean. And that's how you seed the kelp farm. And then in terms of sort of farm tasks and husbandry, it's fairly hands-on um, from that point on. Hands-off? Um, hands-off, yeah, not hands-on. <laughs> uh, it's not that labor-intensive, I guess that's what I'm trying to say. So it's really sort of front-loaded and back-loaded with labor in the middle. You can, you know, it's advisable to go out and make sure your farm is there, right? Because <laughs> it's out there in the wintertime, which I sort of buried that lead, right? So um, the nursery season is in the fall, and typically kelp seed will be outplanted um, anytime between October through uh, now, really, like early December. So it's growing throughout the entire winter months, which is pretty cool, right? Um, it's a crop that happens in the wintertime. Uh, it's a crop that doesn't require land, it doesn't require fresh water, it doesn't require fertilizers, and it will grow from this tiny little two millimeter sporophyte uh, to something that's two and three meters long by the time you harvest it in May and June. So once it's grown from the small sporophyte to what I think most people can picture as a couple meters long kelp blade, then what happens next? Um, because to my knowledge, now in Maine, most of the seaweed that's grown is used for food products um, and then animal feed, right? Yeah, at the moment, I think it's it's heavily weighted towards food, value-added food products, um, be, simply because Maine is still growing a relatively small quantity of seaweed. Um, it has increased that quantity pretty rapidly over the last, I would say, five years. Um, it's sort of been doubling on an annual basis in terms of output. Um, so we're approaching a million pounds, and I wouldn't be surprised if we exceeded that after this winter's harvest, which is great. Um, but the highest value products are those sort of boutique health food um, products. So that's primarily where most of the kelp that's being grown is going to. There are some other companies that are, like you alluded to, looking at things like animal feed. 
Um, and then there are, I know of at least one company, maybe two, that are looking at kelp farming in Maine for uh, bioproducts production. Uh, I think the company is called Everything Seaweed. They're based at the Ocean Cluster House in Portland. Um, and they're looking at biorefining to create things like nanocellulose from kelp. And those are really cool, exciting avenues for the industry to go down. But they're going to require some scale. So talking about scale, I think this is a great segue to discuss one of the papers you sent me. Um, yes, I did my homework. And I'd love to talk about the farm that you all designed called Farm in a Box and why it's important to develop uh, this smaller scale farm for a newer kelp farmer and for Maine's working waterfronts. Yeah, so I mean, if you look at present day kelp farming in Maine, I would say the the pathway that Maine has gone down is to we have a lot of farms that are all relatively small, um, which is not a bad thing. I think if you look at the history of Maine working waterfronts, that's the model that has always been there, is having a lot of smaller scale owner operated producers that then aggregate up to larger impact. And so the way that the industry is structured right now, or what really helped launch the industry, this company Atlantic Sea Farms, which was sort of the progenitor of seaweed farming in Maine, um, you know, their model is they started out having farms, then they really became a value added producing company. So they make these really delicious fermented kelp products among other things. Um, and they use what they call a partner farmer model. And now most of those partner farmers are lobster fishermen and other people that have been working on the water. Um, so no one is really, to my knowledge, sort of making an entire living off of seaweed farming. It's very much a supplemental livelihoods approach. If, if you look at it that way, um, so we sort of recognize that, um, you know, at best, if you're selling for human food products, you're probably getting something like 60 cents on the pound for wet weight of the kelp that you're selling. So the margins are pretty small, right? So if you're not really efficient in how your farm is designed, that's, um, you know, that's revenue loss effectively, right? Um, so the way most of the farms started out was that there were these big, huge, heavy, um, deadweight moorings. So picture like a 3000 pound block of concrete or granite, um, with a somewhat vertical mooring line and then ropes in between. Right. So, uh, you need a fairly sizable boat or you need to pay somebody with a fairly sizable boat to put a 3000 pound block of something in the ocean to hold your kelp farm in place. Um, and that was done rightfully so at the beginning because nobody wanted these things to move and no one really understood how they were going to behave in the ocean. So we sought out, sought to figure that out, right? So how can we take that system and improve upon it, decrease the cost of the components, decrease the size of the components so they can be deployed. Um, so our initial sort of farm in a box, um, which is not the paper that you read, it was like the prior, like version 1.0 of that, hmm. was very, very small. Um, and you could deploy it with two people in an 18 foot boat in like 20 minutes. Um, so this next iteration was slightly larger and was designed also to to withstand higher energy environments. Um, cause I think that's going to be important in Maine as well. Uh, cause we've got, we always, you know, we boast 3,500 miles of coastline, but it's actually a really busy place, especially if you're really close to that coastline, right? There's a lot of different user groups. Um, and at some point, some of these farms are going to have to get a little bit bigger, I think. And there's more space available if you get a 
a little bit further from shore into some areas that are less protected. So the less protected areas, that means that you're having like higher wind action, more wind, waves. bigger waves, higher currents. So there's a lot of talk about, you know, in air quotes, offshore aquaculture. Um, but in the academic sphere, people really will define what offshore really means. Um, you know, is that yeah, outside of three miles? Is it outside of 12 yeah. miles? Is it anywhere in the EZ? Um, but from our perspective in Maine, I think there's a lot of space that is sort of near shore but exposed, so it's, it's not offshore, so you're not having to steam 12 miles out to get to your kelp farm, um, but it's not tucked inside some cove or behind it in the lee of an island, right, where it's really protected. So for example, our the farm in a box paper, that farm was in Saco Bay, so it was a less than a mile from, from port, um, but had unlimited, it was full exposure, mm -hmm. right? So we got, I think we measured a seven meter wave in like 14 meters of water. That's like half the water column, right? So yeah, it's <laughs> really, really energetic, yeah. Well, this farm in a box sounds really cool. So are people currently using this design or is that the hopes for the future? I think that's the hopes in the future. And that was a sort of a single long line system. I think we're, at least our next projects have moved away from that model and are looking at things like arrays where you have multiple lines that are held in place. Um, Cause right now it's one line, two moorings. Um, so if you have a larger farm and say you have a hundred lines, it's a really big farm for me, but then you've got 200 moorings and those in terms of a cost, you know, capex for your farm equipment, those are the probably the most expensive components. So the more that you can decrease those while maintaining the amount of lines you have in the water or sort of area for growing kelp, um, that really helps the bottom line. So, so far, I think I've heard you touch on topics revolving around um, our coastal economy and livelihoods and economic sustainability. And just so we don't run out of time, uh, it would be great if we could move into more of the environmental sustainability side of things and chat a little bit about carbon sequestration and all of that fun stuff that I think most listeners probably have at least heard of um, and may have a little bit of background information on, but might not be totally sure what that all really means. Yeah, so it's interesting, right? Because my thus far, my my foray into the kelp universe has been on sort of the opposite ends of the spectrum, right? It's like starting with super focused community scale, uh, you know, 400 foot long farm uh, and, you know, decreasing the cost as much as possible for someone for supplemental livelihoods. And now way on the other end of that spectrum talking about, well, can seaweed be grown at large enough scales to be uh, a source of offsetting carbon and a nature-based climate change solution? Yeah. So offsetting carbon. So I guess backing up, so there's CO2 in the atmosphere, right? And that's- Too much of it. Too much of it. And that's, you know, we keep hearing this like global warming CO2 and there's all of these different realms that are engineering based or nature based that have been used in the past or are currently being used to try and lower greenhouse gas, gas emissions. And so, um, relatively new is using Kelvin as a way to sequester carbon, right? Take carbon out of the atmosphere in hopes to lower CO2. Um, and I think that's something that like, because it's pretty new, a lot of people are unsure of what that looks like. Um, and really how that even works. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's so new that we're still trying to figure out if it works. Right. I mean, mm -hmm. the, the science here is, this is sort of bleeding edge, right? Um, Sort of like 
to back up and be like, so why, why? <laughs> so we know climate change is a problem, right? It's like, what are we at? 420 parts per million CO2 in the atmosphere, right? And then pre-industrial yeah. levels are something like 350. So we, we've like way overshot where we should be. And even if we stop emitting all carbon now, we're still on our way to more than 1.5 degrees of global planetary warming, right? So we're, we're now to the point where we're going to have to suck some of that carbon back out of the atmosphere to try to re re-equilibrate, re re-equilibrate, re, re, <laughs> re, equilibrate, <laughs> re equilibrate. Yeah. Yep. The climate, right. Um, well, that's going to be fun. <laughs> um, so yeah, so there's sort of a, a, a multitude of different viewpoints and approaches to carbon sequestration, removing carbon from the atmosphere to try to decrease the amount of carbon in the atmosphere, right. And hopefully limit warming. Um, kelp is sort of one of the newest ones so the and and broadly is sort of ocean-based carbon dioxide removal so we call that cdr broadly um is a hot topic area right so we figure there's there's only so much land on the earth they're covered in 70 percent ocean so perhaps the oceans should be a solution for for climate in fact they already have been right like people don't really understand that but without the oceans we would have cooked ourselves off this planet uh, a long time ago, uh, they're the biggest CO2 sink. So that's part of the reason that the oceans are really attractive for carbon dioxide removal is that most of the carbon dioxide that we emit actually just goes into the ocean, dissolves just into naturally. the ocean, right? So this is where, this is what's driving things like, if you're familiar with concepts around ocean acidification, right? The oceans are becoming more acidic. That's because the oceans are big giant sponges for CO2. They suck them up. Thank you, oceans. Um, but that comes with consequences, right? So there's too much CO2 in the atmosphere. There's also too much CO2 in the ocean. So the idea is by using something like kelp or uh, uh, what are some other, so it's like ocean alkalinity or uh, iron fertilization. So ways to create or to increase the primary productivity in the ocean, which sucks carbon out of the ocean. And then if you can take that car, the, the trick is getting that carbon to then be sequestered away. Um, and I have gone way around in a circle and now I'm back to where I was, <laughs> I was starting. Um, so kelp has been proposed as one of these solutions, right? So terrestrial analogs might be something like uh, forests, right? Or afforestation where you're planting a forest where there wasn't a forest before those trees grow, you leave them there for a really long time um and they suck carbon out of the atmosphere put them in their trunks and it's there for a meaningful period of time to help us decrease carbon um in many ways that's a lot less challenging than doing it in the ocean because you can measure a tree you can measure a forest you can say fairly reliably this is how much carbon is in here um and how how much carbon is in there on an annual basis that's more difficult with kelp um but one of the reasons kelp is i think attractive or is proposed to be attractive is that it grows a lot faster than a tree right so where you like i was saying earlier you you seed this kelp farm out and these tiny kelps are at two millimeters long and then you know four to six months later they're three meters long and that's just sugar kelp right so macrocystis the the giant kelps on the west coast they grow on the order of meters per day right so that's and they're really efficient at sucking nutrients and carbon out of the ocean the problem is they're not a tree right so you have to lock that carbon away somewhere. So to lock the carbon away, is this where sinking kelp to the bottom of the ocean comes into play? 
Well, there, there are many. Well, I should, I should say, no one is sinking any kelp to the bottom of the ocean right now. Okay. Like, we are not there yet. Okay. So, most of the research exercises around this are sort of theoretical, right? Sort of forecasting. Mm -hmm. um, well, we know on average how much carbon content is in sugar kelp. Um, we can account for all of the, you know, uh, carbon inputs and cost inputs into a theoretical production system. And then we can also forecast what that looks like in terms of carbon sequestration if you do X, Y, Z, P, and Q with your kelp, right? So the point is that kelp, it's biologic, it's biomass, it's not wood, it, it doesn't want to stay, right? It, in terms of a product, it's actually really hard to handle, right? So whether it's a food product or you're doing something with for carbon sequestration, as soon as that kelp comes out of the water, it starts to decompose and degrade. And with that, when that happens, either it's being it's being consumed by something, right? And if it's just decomposition, that's bacteria. Those bacteria then respire, and that carbon that was in the kelp goes right back into the atmosphere. Mm -hmm. So the idea being, um, pathways for using kelp as a carbon solution um, are pretty diverse, right? So the one that you alluded to is we could take that biomass, we sink it to the bottom of the ocean. So if you most people are saying if you if you can get it below a thousand meters in depth, it'll probably stay there for most of it will probably stay there for a meaningful period of time. The other option is either growing the kelp on a farm or or cataloging wild seaweed populations and doing a lot of math and modeling to figure out how much carbon is coming from those systems naturally. Right. So there are a lot, like other natural like blue carbon sinks, right? So things like mangroves and seagrasses and marshes are looked at as these ecosystems are are net sequesterers of carbon. So they're good to have around. If you protect them from degrading or being developed, then there's a carbon benefit there. That's less clear with kelp. So if you picture a blade of kelp, um, if you picture a blade of kelp, it's basically like a conveyor belt of tissue, right? So it's a big lasagna noodle in the ocean. There's a piece of spaghetti on one end of that. That's the stipe. That's where it attacks, attaches to a rock or whatever it wants to be growing on. And the kelp only adds a new tissue right around that base area, right? So it adds new tissue, it pushes old tissue out. And then as that old tissue gets old, it breaks off because there's waves, there's tissue erosion, the tissue just sort of dies and goes out into the ocean. And most of that sort of particulate kelp matter is going to be remineralized. So that means something's going to eat it, whether that's an animal or a bacterium, and it's going to respire most of that carbon eventually back out of the atmosphere. But some of that kelp, sort of that plume of, we'll call it kelp detritus, will make its way into the deep ocean without being consumed by anything and get incorporated into sediments. And that is another pathway that carbon can be sequestered by kelp. The other pathway is to actually harvest that kelp and move it into some process and that helps lock carbon away. So that could be something like creating biochar out of kelp, which is then used as a soil amendment to lock carbon away in soils, right? Or like figuring out a way, I don't know, it's like crazy example, right? Like we take kelp, we find some compound in it. It turns out if you add it to uh, like particle board production or maybe concrete or something like that, you can help decrease the carbon footprint of these other materials and then you're locking that carbon away in the built environment. Those are the other pathways. What we've focused on is what seems like the most, uh, the easiest one in terms, or the, maybe the most probable one for locking large quantities of carbon away in a verifiable way is sinking it. 
So to be clear, no one is sinking kelp right now, but there is hope from researchers that this is a potential viable solution to address ever-increasing levels of carbon in the atmosphere, correct? Yeah, I think it's important. It's like, I want to underscore that, right? It's really important that like our, our group, we are not coming at this from an advocacy perspective at all. Sort of, we, we're just sort of recognize, I think we call ourselves like enthusi enthusiastically skeptical or something like that, right? So, you know, we sort of realize that the, the climate train is is far enough away from the station that we don't we no longer have the luxury of discounting potential solutions, right? But we also recognize that there are a lot of questions that need to be answered about this particular proposal or proposed solution before it can really be enacted, right? So like, like as, environmental as, impact, right? As an ecologist, right? I mean, yeah. I know there's life everywhere, and just because you're below a thousand meters doesn't mean that there's not an ecosystem down there, so. There are, there are just a lot of biological and ecological questions that need to be answered about uh, what might happen and how you're like selecting these areas where you might be putting lots of kelp. Um, we didn't come at it that from that angle. We came at it from a techno-economic angle for the reason. The reason being, well, if you you can ask all those biological questions, but you might as well ask the economic ones up front, right? Because if you build this model and it says there is no way this is going to be economically feasible ever, then great. Let's move on. If it looks like there's hope and promise there, then let's keep pushing the envelope forward. And eventually we'll answer a lot of those other questions too. So yeah, no one that I know of is sinking kelp. No, I can rephrase that. No one is sinking kelp and selling carbon credits. <laughs> and if they are, email me and let me know because I want to know about it. <laughs> so if we're talking about carbon, we should probably talk about the emissions released during the farming process. While the kelp is growing on the water, it's minimal resource effort, meaning um, you're not having to feed your kelp or any of that, but you do have to go out to the farm and check on it throughout the process, right? So is more carbon sequestered than is emitted during farming and processing? Yeah, so the, like I said, so sort, of, sort of the impetus initially, right, between, so we built what's called a techno-economic model um, which is a fancy speak for, we envisioned a kelp production system, we benchmarked it to existing costs, and then we figured out how much it would cost to sequester a ton of CO2 using kelp into the bottom of the ocean, right? Coupled with that, if you're doing anything with carbon, you sort of have to do the math and do your own carbon accounting, like you were saying, and discount from your carbon sequestration the amount of carbon that your production system is liberating into the ocean. So the the second reason that we're, I guess the, the other, no, I don't know if I said the primary reason, but one of the other reasons we built this TEA, techno-economic model, was that it, it felt a little bit like there had been other kelp TEAs that had been done, but they had, a lot of them had focused on future tech, right? So technology for kelp farming that either hadn't been employed yet or was like really on the edge of what was possible. So we sought to create what we were calling a baseline TEA, right? Because it felt like like there's investment coming and there are people that want to do this now. And we want to make sure that we're creating an accurate picture of what reality might be. So our model is as explicit and place-based and reality-based as possible. So these are like, this is a, te a technique that we know people are using right now. So we benchmarked it to, you know, not 
what kelp nurseries of the future might be able to do, but what people are doing right now. The farm structures within the model are an extrapolation to larger scales of what people are doing right now. But that meant that we also were sort of, we didn't have those end of life processes figured out either. We just had to assume, uh, okay, it's time to sequester this kelp carbon. We're going to harvest it. We're going to put it on a barge and we're going to tug it out, you know, tow that barge with a tug out to a thousand meters and then sink that kelp in some spot. Right. So it turns out when you're growing kelp and trying to sequester carbon, um, when you hire a tugboat <laughs> running on diesel to steam into the Gulf of Maine out to a thousand meters and dump it, it blows a lot of your carbon budget, right? Um, that was a big portion of the carbon accounting within the production system, as was, it turns out, the nursery um, accounted for something like 30, I want to say 25 or 30% of the total carbon emissions was just within the nursery itself. So that's the value of these kinds of models is that once you have that production system and you have the model built, you can do sensitivity analyses and then say, well, if we optimize A, B, C, D, P, and Q, here are the potential savings, both economically and from a carbon perspective. So it helps you sort of visualize a pathway forward without having to go out there and do it um, and allow you to like understand where the biggest bang for your buck is going to be in terms of optimization and, and innovation. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. And the nice thing about this, again, like, you know, like I say, we're sort of skeptically enthusiastic about this as an option, but these kinds of models are also really helpful to the industry where it is right now, right? So these optimization pathways that we've identified um, can help farming now, just as it would if somebody was actually doing farming for carbon sequestration. So all of the research that you've been a part of and that we've been talking about throughout this episode has been done in Maine. Um, is this applicable or relevant to other areas of the U.S., like maybe on the West Coast or even other parts of the world as well? The farm in a box paper, that is a farm that we actually deployed in Saco Bay. So mm -hmm. that was very small community scale looking at hyper-applied engineering for kelp farming to meet it where it is right now. The, the techno-economic modeling paper was based in the Gulf of Maine, we picked a site off of Monhegan Island, which is out off the entrance to Penobscot Bay. We picked it because we wanted this techno-economic model to be as granular as possible to account for as many costs and as many carbon sources as we could in building the model. So the regulatory framework and permitting framework around putting a seaweed farm outside of state waters anywhere in the United States is opaque at best, whereas Maine has a really well-regulated um, and defined aquaculture industry. There are defined pathways to getting area, there are defined costs. Um, so it allowed us then to be really place-based in how we built this model. Then, you know, so we, we put it there because it was it's a location of convenience, right? Maine has an existing kelp industry. Um, it's a leader in kelp at the moment. Um, if you were to ask me if the Gulf of Maine, so if you if you expand this, right, like, yeah, like, did you ask if the model is applicable to mm -hmm. areas outside of Maine? Like, that's yeah. the goal, right, is that we made this really granular model because we're here, like you said, and because we're familiar with the place and because there was an existing really robust framework to place this model within. 
if you just sort of then zoom out and say, well, does it even, does it really make sense to do kelp for carbon if it works in the Gulf of Maine? I'm less inclined to say yes there, right? Because the Gulf of Maine is a really unique ecosystem, but it's a fairly shallow basin. So to get to depths that would make sense for carbon sequestration, you've got to move your, your biomass a really long way, which is going to be really carbon intensive unless you innovate your way into some vessel that is electric or doesn't use a lot of diesel or whatever that might be, right? Which is, I think, but even if that's the case, um, the scale that's going to be needed is pretty, would be pretty considerable, right? And Maine, we've got 3,500 miles of coastline, Alaska, 66,000, right? So, <laughs> and they're a lot closer to the continental shelf break, so it's easier to access. You know, there are, there are going to be localities where this makes more economic sense to do and more, uh, I can't underscore how important it's going to be to make sure that if this happens, the places that it happens are the right places, both biologically, ecologically, uh, and socially with regards to sustainability. Thanks. I uh, actually feel like this is a pretty good wrap-up spot. Um, so thanks for talking about kelp with us, Adam, and uh, sharing everything you know about it. Yeah, it wasn't everything, but we'd be here for a long time. <laughs> well, that would be like a follow-up. hour-long podcast. Yeah. Thanks, Corinne. Thanks for listening to our conversation about kelp. Hope you enjoyed it and got something out of it. It's always fun to hear Adam talk about kelp, and I really appreciate him taking the time to share his knowledge and research with us. 